Welcome to the Mothball Prophecies. I am your host, Jonathan. On this episode, we're back in Louisiana, specifically Shreveport, Louisiana. Originally, this episode started out as a show about conspiracy theories regarding what the FBI knows about UFOs, counterintelligence relevant to flying saucers, and the USSR during the Cold War, and what they won't tell you about it. You see, while researching a widely available FBI memo that many people point to as evidence that the government is indeed in possession of extraterrestrial objects, I was led to an incident that took place in Shreveport. This, of course, led me to look into what other strange phenomena occurred in the area. Quite a bit, it turns out. As per usual in southern cities, Shreveport is not lacking in ghost stories, usually structured around plantation owners, and many of those serve as half-hearted apologies to the atrocities of slavery or as lasting reminders of how bad war is. Sort of an only-now-in-this-late-hour-do-I-see-the-folly-of-my-ways sort of thing. Many ghost stories in the South make the reader or listener think, my goodness, what horrible tragedy befell these people. They were just living their lives and did nothing to deserve this. They're kind of cautionary tales for white folks told by white folks about the dangers of being too white, wrapped in a romantic, good old days bow, as if to say, it wasn't really all that bad. But it was. It was really bad. Incredibly bad. Thank goodness they haven't removed all of the Confederate statues in Louisiana, or else I wouldn't know history at all. And before I get the wrong sort of people joining the audience, that was sarcasm. I'm telling you it was sarcasm. I'm telling you this because there are no statues dedicated to sarcasm. So many of you may not know what it is. But you can learn all about sarcasm in a book. Anyway, Shreveport also has one or two haunted roads, which is obligatory for any city, and the infamous Greenlight Bridge, where motorists have reported an eerie green glow that rises from a nearby creek. I have yet to find out what menace the green glow poses, but, you know, it's there. And, of course, there's the nearby Air Force Base. Barksdale Air Force Base has been the source of a number of sightings of aerial phenomena by both civilians and service people, and not just in the 20th century. Barksdale and the surrounding area in Shreveport have been and continue to be sources of sightings ranging from orbs to triangles to flying rods to this very day. But it's Shreveport, Louisiana, where a statement from the FBI became one of the cornerstones of UFO conspiracy theory in the 20th century, one that also persists to this day. And it all started in 1947. You see, 1947 was a big year for anyone interested in UFOs. 
Private pilot Kenneth Arnold made his report of unidentified flying objects, which resulted in the term flying saucers being added to our lexicon. And while the term was used to describe the motion of the objects rather than the shape of them, you see, they moved like saucers skipped over the water. But the objects themselves were reported to be crescent-shaped. 1947 also saw, depending on which source you want to believe, up to three crashes in New Mexico, the most famous of which was the Roswell Incident. You can fill a small library with all of the books written on Roswell, each filled with information that contradicts the others. Most of the pages are filled with conjecture, including official reports released by the military, and despite the 70-plus years that have passed, no conclusion has been reached apart from something happened. Needless to say, there was a growing UFO craze in the late 1940s, which sparked Project Sign, Project Grudge, Project Twinkle, Project Blue Book, The Condon Report, and others to study and classify UFO sightings. As physicist Bruce Maccabee pointed out, the percentage of cases that actually could be explained away hovered around 20%. This does not automatically place UFOs in the realm of vehicles piloted by extraterrestrials. It simply means that despite credible witnesses and the information offered, no explanation could be given that lined up with whether military operations, aircraft, both known and experimental, or meteorological and astronomical phenomena. In other words, not everything could be classified as delusional tales or swamp gas. Quite a bit simply could not be explained. The FBI, of course, took great interest in UFOs. We were at the start of the Cold War and the United States could not have unknown aircraft zipping around the skies. What if those UFOs turned out to be previously unidentified or experimental aircraft? Obviously, a threat from outer space was preferable to the possible reality that Soviet aircraft were flying over our country. That would potentially send a shock through the population of the United States and severely impact our morale. Remember, in 1947, we were a global power following the Second World War. We had nuclear weapons, and we were positioning ourselves to enter both the arms race and the space race, with some overlap between the two objectives. The FBI, as much as the witnesses, wanted to figure out what UFOs were even if the motives were very different. On July 24, 1947, a memo to J. Edgar Hoover read, I would do it, but before agreeing to do it, we must insist upon full access to discs recovered. For instance, in the L.A. case, the Army grabbed it and would not let us have it for cursory examination. The L.A. case mentioned in this memo is spelled capital L, lowercase a. Initially, I thought this was a typo. 
and that the memo referred to something that occurred in Los Angeles. A lot of people mentioned the battle for L.A., which involved supposed flying saucers. But no. There was an incident in Louisiana, which we will get to in just a little bit. I'll admit, the first time I ran across that memo was in a 1979 documentary called UFOs Are Real. That's where I pulled the sample from, which was co-written by the late Stanton Friedman. It's one of my favorite UFO documentaries because it's stripped down to just bare evidence that supports the case for UFOs. There's very little conjecture. There are no wild tales. I mean, at the end, it kind of veers off into weird territory because they let Wendell Stevens go on about Billy Meyer. But for the most part, it's a decent documentary. I probably won't do an episode on Billy Meyer. But Wendell Stevens was certainly a character. And while he supposedly had the largest library of UFO information, the man was far from incredulous about as far from incredulous as one could get, so he shows up in some strange places over the years. But back to the FBI memo. This memo, along with the others, are frequently tossed about as evidence that the FBI was aware of UFOs. It also indicates that the FBI and the military were in some weird competition to examine UFO reports and seize any physical evidence for their respective departments. The military, obviously, wanted access to new technologies, which were usually handled by Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. The FBI, on the other hand, wanted to make sure the communists weren't getting a foothold in the United States by way of UFO groups, but I'm getting a bit ahead of myself here. Because of that memo, UFO documentaries, books, websites, and conferences have been pointing to the capital F fact that the government has been withholding vital UFO information from the public. The specifics of the L.A., let's just call it the Louisiana case, were made available with the advent of the FOIPA, the Freedom of Information and Privacy Act, which came into effect in 1967 and has been amended many times over the years. The first in 1974, following Watergate, and those amendments were spearheaded by, believe it or not, Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld, both career secret keepers spanning several presidential administrations. And most recently, the Freedom of Information and Privacy Act was amended in 2010, which repealed provisions that were designed to protect corporations and the watch lists that corporations held and their trading records and other trade secrets. So go, File those information requests. Who knows what you'll find or how you'll be able to spin it. But back to the Louisiana case. On the evening of July 7th, 1947, in Shreveport, Louisiana, a flying saucer was sighted. 
The witness filed a report with Barksdale Field Air Force Base. The following is the opening of that report. Subject. Flying disc found in Shreveport, Louisiana, 7 July 1947. Summary of Information This office received a report at 2100 hours, 7 July 1947, that a flying disc had been located in Shreveport, Louisiana, and immediately initiated an investigation which revealed the following information. Mr. Name Redacted stated in an interview on 7 July 1947 that at 6.05 p.m., 7 July 1947, he had heard the disc whirling through the air and had looked up in time to see it when it was approximately 200 feet in the air and coming over a signboard adjacent to the car, used car lot where he was standing. The witness stated that smoke and fire were coming from the disc and that it was traveling at a high rate of speed and that it fell into the street in his immediate vicinity. The witness further stated that he had retrieved the disc from the street and immediately notified Army officials at Barksdale Field. Now that's pretty wild stuff. I mean, just a month earlier, the Roswell case took place. And now in Shreveport, the local ghost stories were getting replaced by sightings of actual flying saucers. And in this particular case, they didn't have to rely on landing traces or wild tales by the locals. No, in this case, Mr. Name Redacted, uh, mentioned above, recovered the crash disc himself and called in the military like any good American citizen deep in the throes of Cold War-induced xenophobia. However, the tone of the report changes once you read the second paragraph, which states, Examination of the disc disclosed that it had been made from a round piece of either all-clad or pure-clad aluminum, .064 inches in thickness, in the center of the disc was an ordinary starter from a fluorescent light, which was fastened on by means of a Parker Kalon self-tapping screw. Located on each side at approximately one inch from the edge of the disc was a condenser of an unknown type, which was held in place by an aluminum strap, which was fastened to the disc by two aluminum rivets. Two strands of coiled copper wire connected the condensers to the starter in the center of the disc. The condensers and a portion of the disc adjacent to the top of the condensers appeared to be covered. So, that's a bit of a letdown. The disc recovered had very terrestrial origins. Even store-bought, if you want to go that far. The truth is that it was made by a person who wanted to play a practical joke on their boss. Unfortunately, the boss wasn't paying attention, and the only person who saw it was a complete stranger. 
the aforementioned Mr. Name Redacted who reported it. And to show you how incredibly thorough the military was in their reporting, Mr. Name Redacted, the guy who recovered the disc, went by the last name of Harston. I know this, not because I have access to the unredacted files, but because the military, for all of their efforts to black out real names in their reports, did not redact the person's name later in that same case report. Yet, despite this hoax, and it is labeled as a hoax complete with pictures, which I'll link the entire report in the show notes, the resulting FBI memo about, quote, all disks recovered, has been flaunted about in books, documentaries, and blog articles to point to the fact that the government took very seriously the matter of UFOs, which they did. Which brings us to the second part of this episode, and the one that's always more fun than gluing electronics to a hubcap for a practical joke. That's right, I'm talking about conspiracies. Now, it's no real secret that ufologists and UFO groups were monitored by government agencies. The usual reason put forth is that they didn't want anyone to get too close to the truth. That's why when you watch a documentary like Mirage Men, you can see how ufologists were physically and psychologically harassed for coming close to getting their hands on quote-unquote real evidence. You know, except Linda Moulton Howe. And maybe she's the mole. Real talk here for a second. I don't know when Linda Moulton Howe made the jump from making one interesting documentary on cattle mutilations back around 1980. It's called Strange Harvest, if you want to look it up to becoming a regular expert on coast-to-coast. I mean, if anyone knows how this transition happened, drop me a line. Anyway, the other reason that ufologists were monitored, or infiltrated with disinformation agents, if you believe Bill Cooper, is that ufologists, with their distrust of the government could be leveraged by nations who wanted to destabilize our country. In the late 40s, up to very recently, that would have been Russia. It stands to reason that a group of people who harbored disdain for the lack of transparency and supposed cover-ups could be nudged by quote-unquote new information and ideas, which would further cause them to lose faith in our military security agencies, and lawmakers, thereby opening the door for Russia to directly interfere with American affairs. Thank goodness that hasn't happened. I'd like to offer a simpler explanation. Even though the other two conspiracy theories are viable, if you take out the aspects that make them look like a comic book series, it's very possible that UFO groups were being monitored by the FBI and the CIA because UFOlogists are very driven when it comes to information and evidence. 
And since many UFO groups, especially back then, relied on membership dues and donations to keep operations going, if someone were to offer cash for evidence, that would have been an even bigger incentive. During the Cold War, as always, the military was testing everything from experimental aircraft to weapons to prototypes for the space program. Remember, the world didn't know about the U-2 spy plane until one was shot down. So, let's say a ufologist gets some photographs or other evidence of a thing they believe to be of extraterrestrial origin, but in reality is our own technology. Someone representing a foreign power is willing to pay for this evidence under the guise of openness and transparency, the very thing the U.S. government doesn't want. And suddenly, the ufologist, in accepting that money and handing over the evidence, just unwittingly handed over proof that compromises national security and stepped in a big old pile of treason in the process. Again, thank goodness something like that hasn't happened, right? So yes, the government has secrets. Are they of an extraterrestrial nature? Probably not. But they're secrets, so we don't know. National security is not always devised in dark, smoke-filled rooms by old white dudes who want to harm the citizens of the U.S. I mean, yes, it's definitely devised by old white dudes, and we should get them out of their offices. But the intent is not always to harm citizens. And national security isn't always about extraterrestrials. We have bigger issues to tackle than disclosure before we can function and make progress as a healthy nation. See my previous statement about old white men and getting them out of office. Much like that hoax in Shreveport, Louisiana, one person's practical joke is another person's UFO or the government's matter of concern. But this third option isn't entirely mine. You see glimmers of it in early talks by Stanton Friedman. You see it to this day in the writings of Bruce Maccabee, who, along with Ted Phillips and possibly Richard Haynes, are the most analytical ufologists alive today because they're not running off of weird theories that they heard late at night on the radio or saw on the History Channel. Those people are from the old guard who deal in facts and nuts and bolts analyses and reports instead of wild speculation. Bruce Maccabee is an actual scientist, like Stanton Friedman and J. Allen Hynek, and they simply cannot dismiss those thousands of cases that cannot be explained by conventional means. Extraterrestrials, however, are not always the answer. And government interest doesn't always mean there's a UFO cover-up. Or, as 
we've seen or heard in this very episode, the idea of a cover-up is just as much perpetuated by the ufologists as it is the agencies they vilify. And much like now, the best you can do is listen to the experts. Do thorough research on your own. And apply common sense. By eliminating the improbable and fantastical, you can find a simple, albeit less sexy and less intriguing, explanation. And that about wraps up this episode of The Mothball Prophecies. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends about it and like our Facebook page. Heck, join our Facebook group. And remember... If you have evidence of a UFO and someone offers you money for it, ask who they work for. Because by virtue of their deep pockets, they're probably not UFOlogists themselves. You know, unless it's Bob Bigelow. Then take as much money as you can get and run the other way. Until next time, sleep tight. (laughs) 